they did not cling to life, even in the face of death. We thought this would be a good text because today in the lectionary we're going to read about the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But we're also celebrating Dr. Martin Luther King. And the word there, uh, where it says that they overcome by the word of their testimony, that word is actually in the Greek, it's martus, it means martyr. And we honor all of God's martyrs today, and specifically Dr. King, who was a martyr for our time. And uh, he overcame. And he didn't cling to his life, even unto death. And so we thought to finish out today's music, we would sing a song that was sung then, and it's the song we shall overcome. It was actually written by a minister. Father, I ask that you would anoint me now in this moment to deliver something that would challenge our hearts, transform our lives, bring love to our neighbors, and transform the world for the sake of your kingdom and your glory. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. You may be seated. I was young when my father first told me stories that shocked me about racism and segregation in the South and even up North. Uh, one of the ones that he told me, many of you have heard this story before, but I'll repeat it if you haven't. He told me about when he was uh, a young, young man, he wanted to marry this girl he had been dating and he went to her father's house, her mother's house, the family's home. And he sat down and he talked with her father and he expressed his interest to marrying uh, the father's daughter. And the man was a white minister, a white preacher, and he looked at my dad and he said, if you ever marry my daughter, who, my dad's dark-complected, he's Mexican-American, and he said, if you ever marry my daughter, you will never walk through the front door of our home. You're always going to walk through the back door. My father was heartbroken, of course, and not only did he leave that house, but he also broke things off with that young lady out of respect for her, knowing what that would bring. Uh, not only did he leave the home, he left the city, and he ended up moving away from Fort Wayne, Indiana to Newcastle, Pennsylvania, where he's been pastoring now for almost 50 years or so. I also remember him telling me a story about uh, my uncle Alex being in the Vietnam War, and he was coming home uh, before he was sent back out, and there was a moment where my father got a chance to go hang out with my uncle Alex, they went to this diner, 
And I remember being young, maybe John Luke's age, when he first told me the story. And they were sitting at a diner, and one of my uncle's um, comrades, uh, another soldier, tried to get into the diner. He was black. And my, my uncle and my father were sitting in the diner. They saw him walk in through the doors, and a lady met him at the door and said, you're not allowed to eat here. You can't eat here. This diner is not for you. And my uncle and my father got up, and I still remember this, him describing this. They went to the front, and they spoke with the manager, and they said, that gentleman is serving our country. That gentleman should be allowed to eat in this restaurant. And they wouldn't do it. They wouldn't budge. And so my dad and my uncle left, and that's the end of the story. But I remember that story to this day. It stayed with me because at a young age, I couldn't fathom how something like this could happen in a country where at the time in the 60s, uh, I think it was close to 80% of Americans, white Americans, claimed Christianity. And yet this sort of dichotomy existed, right? Where, where segregation and the echoes of slavery were still creating damage. We were not loving our neighbors as ourselves. We weren't loving people with equality. And yet we were claiming Jesus at the time. And this Monday, we celebrate Dr. Martin Luther King, January the 20th. We celebrate it at, his, it's not really his birthday, but that's when we celebrate him. It's a federal holiday. I want to read you a quote from Bernice, which is his daughter. And if you don't know about Bernice King, you need to follow her. You need to track along with her. She's online. She's on Twitter. She's amazing. She's faithful to the teachings of her father. But she wrote this a few weeks ago, and it's a message that she constantly brings up. She said, one year before he was assassinated, my father spoke out in opposition to the Vietnam War. It heightened hate toward him. He was among the most hated men in America. Many who quote him now would have hated him then and may hate the authentic MLK today, end quote. What she's referring to is the fact that in 1968, when Dr. King was killed, he was the most hated man in America. There's an infamous poll that was taken by, I believe the company was called uh, Harris. And the poll that was taken discovered that nearly 75% of Americans disapproved of Dr. King. They disapproved of him and they disapproved of his work. So his witness and his work at the time of his death were rejected. That's heavy, especially when we're about to celebrate him now. And I want to lean into that tension for a minute. Last night, I attended with many others uh, an interfaith Shabbat at Rodef Shalom. It's a synagogue right up the street. So you literally are about two minutes away. And it was to honor the legacy of Dr. King. One of the things they did that I really appreciate is they read segments and portions from, have you ever read uh, Letters from a Birmingham Jail? Or Letter from a Birmingham Jail? It's, it's an amazing, powerful letter that Dr. King wrote. And in that letter, I think you see a lot of his ideas, his theology uh, transferred into this letter. But what's crazy about the letter is that it was a response to white clergy, eight white clergymen, all men, all white, and they wrote him this nasty critique, this rebuke. And in so many words, these all preachers, all pastors, these white clergy members from the Baptist church, the Methodist church, even the Episcopalian church, the Episcopal church, Methodist, Presbyterian, they wrote him a letter, and in so many words, this is what they said. You're meddling. 
You're an outsider. You're not from Alabama. You're meddling in our business. Be quiet, essentially. And a lot of times that's still said, right? People are told, just preach Jesus. You're meddling in other things. And they wrote him this rebuke, and he was in prison, but somehow he got a copy because it was in the newspaper. He got a copy of their letter, and he sat down, deeply hurt, deeply offended, and he wrote one of the most articulate responses to anyone who would say that the gospel has nothing to do with social justice, that the gospel has nothing to do with how we engage with society, the ordering of the world. One of the things that he wrote, <laughs> and this is hard to hear, but I think we're in a room here that would agree with this message. Dr. King wrote, white ministers, he said, have failed to teach how social issues are connected to the gospel. And hear this. But instead, they teach a social conformity that, is, that has scarred the church. Now, this is heavy, but I think Dr. King was telling the truth. Can I get an amen? Let's try it one more time. I think Dr. King was telling the truth. Can I get an amen? I, I think that we have to ask the question, is this still happening? Is there a version of Jesus that is diluted and domesticated that is still being preached from pulpits today because it gives license and credence to Jesus that is for the status quo, Jesus that has nothing to say about the world and how we organize the world? And what's ironic to me is when it comes to two issues, then the church wants to tell everybody what to do. But when it comes to issues of justice, and all justice is, is loving our neighbor in public, right? Dr. Cornell West has so eloquently defined it that way. Are we still seeing a Jesus that's being preached that is merely religious, a religious add-on to one's predisposed habits of nationalism, materialism, consumerism, tribalism, the idolatry of family. I mean, have, have we seen this Jesus that is just here to make your life, your current life better? A Jesus that wants you to have your best life now, to quote the title of a famous mega, mega church pastor's book. Is Jesus just here to just affirm you? And are you just here to affirm an assent to Jesus? Or did Jesus come preaching a radical kingdom to radical followers who left everything behind and followed him because he is the Lamb of God, because he is the one, he is the greatest ever in terms of teachers, rabbi, the one we find purpose in, the one we find life in and truth in. Is he that one or is he just a religious commodity that we add on to our lives? It is possible in 2020 that Christianity still exists as a mechanized tool for social conformity. Even when we're told, do not be conformed in Romans, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Is it possible that in 2020 we still live in a nation where the vast majority still claim some form of Christianity? That if Dr. King were alive today to quote his daughter, that he would still be hated. Does his daughter know her father? 
I think so. I know so because she's committed to his teachings and everything that he wrote. By the way, Dr. King was celebrated as a great orator, but even more than that, he was a mighty writer. And I almost have equal, I do have equal respect to what he wrote. Jesus said in Luke chapter 11, verse 47, Woe to you, for you build monuments to honor the prophets, but they're the same prophets that your ancestors killed. So you are witnesses and approve of the deeds of your ancestors, to quote Jesus. We were in Washington, D.C. a few years back, and we were hanging out right next to <laughs> what was being built at the time, I believe. Now there's a monument for America's prophet, and America's prophet, of course, being Dr. King. And it's awesome, and I'm so happy, and I celebrate the fact that we have a monument of Dr. King. One of the things that I tell John, Luke, and Monty, um, because they're studying about him in school, and, and Monty came home, I don't think she can hear me. I still owe her a dollar because I said her name. And you too, I said your name. But um, Monty came home, and we're, we're riding home from school, and she says, Daddy, do you know they shot Dr. King? And I said, tragic. And then I told her, and I tell them this all the time, he was one of the greatest Americans who ever lived. I want you to honor him. He was a great American. And a few years back, we were sitting beside this historian, theologian, amazing guy, Dr. Ron Sider. And in our interview with him, we were making a documentary about a movement called the Red Letters Movement. And to have him for an hour was an honor. So one of the questions I asked Dr. Sider while we were sitting there is I said, you know, here we are in D.C. And I was thinking about Dr. King and I said, why is it we don't see more of Dr. Martin Luther King type people? Why don't we see Dr. King's in our churches? He was a Baptist minister. Why don't we see more of this? And he said to me something that I'll never forget. He said, well, first of all, prophets are few and far between. I, I, I'll never forget that because I never thought about him as a prophet until that moment. A prophet is one who speaks what God is saying in a biblical sense. But even more than that, a prophet is one who speaks the truth in a culture that is not open to it. And he said to me, we don't have very many of those folks. Also, number two, because most ministers choose the security of the status quo. Tell him, Silas. The, the security of the status quo. He said most people in the, behind the pulpits don't want to speak the way Dr. King spoke because they're so attached to security. And something inside of me in that moment said, do not be one of those preachers. Something lit up in my heart in that moment. I almost can weep thinking about it because I remember saying, if I ever find myself, at the time I was not behind any pulpit, but I told myself, if I ever find myself behind a pulpit, may I never bow to the idol of security and status quo. May I always call God's people to do the right thing. To quote Spike Lee, do the right thing. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., did the right thing. America is filled with Christians, and I believe it's time now to call them to never give up 
on what Dr. King's vision was, what his dream was, to always do the right thing for all people, anyone on the underside of power, that is your neighbor. Anyone in need, bleeding and dying on the Jericho Road, that is your neighbor. And we have to ask, like Dr. King said, maybe the whole road needs repaved now, now that we think about it. Maybe the whole Jericho Road needs to be reimagined. And I believe it's our call as Christians to bring God's kingdom to this earth. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Justice is how we love our neighbor. And may we never desire security more than justice. So how do we do this? What does the church really need? What's this text that we read today? The text that we read today is all about discipleship. And I think this is the answer. I think discipleship is the answer. It's so easy for us to claim a Christianity and neglect discipleship. It's easy for us to claim a form of Christianity and neglect radical discipleship. And I want to read to you a quote. The rest of this on my way out, by the way, is going to be just the theology of a lovely minister. Was he Baptist? I don't remember. Dallas Willard. Was he Baptist? I think he was. But he's amazing. Uh, one, one, he passed away, but one of the books that he wrote that really... Um, the Divine Conspiracy, thank you. His book, The Divine Conspiracy, is well known. But even beyond that, he wrote a book that I love called The Great Omission. And it's a book about discipleship. Dallas Willard wrote, The greatest issue, listen to this, Ugh, so good. The greatest issue facing our world today is, will Christians become disciples? Will Christians become disciples? What does the church really need? Sacred Commons, what does the church really need? What does the church need? The church does not need more people. The church, does, I know that sounds crazy. Let me explain. Church doesn't need more people. Church doesn't need more money. The church doesn't need better buildings, better programs. Church doesn't need more education or prestige. Those are all good things. I'm not saying they're bad. The church has always been at its best, however, when it had little or none of these things. Dallas Willard says, all the church needs to fulfill Christ's purpose is not a higher quantity of Christians, not a higher quantity of money, not in a, a higher quantity of talent and education. We do not need a higher quantity of Christians. We need a higher quality. And that's what discipleship is all about. It's about a higher quality. It's like one of those cars. I don't, if you have one of these cars, I'm not talking about you. I'm just talking about your window. Have you ever seen one of those cars that has nothing but duct tape over a window <laughs> when you're driving down the street? You see them a lot in, in Ohio. Maybe it's because we don't, have, we don't have inspection here, right? Or we do. Is it Pennsylvania? PA has inspections, but Ohio doesn't. Ohio doesn't. So we're the land of duct tape windows. And you'll be driving down 680, and here comes someone beside you, and all of a sudden you see, I mean, it is an engineering marvel when you think about it. You have managed to keep the elements out of your vehicle using nothing but duct tape. But the thing that I think about when I see those windows is I say, oh man, that car does not need more duct tape. <laughs> that window does not need more duct tape. What it needs is a real authentic window. Church doesn't need more duct tape. The church needs authentic windows that the light of Jesus Christ can shine through.
The church needs authentic Christians. Not, I would love to see more Christians, absolutely. I do believe if we work together, ecumenically, more Christians, we can do more for the kingdom. I would never argue that. But don't think that quantity is gonna save the world. Jesus had 12 disciples. One was a little bit bad. They all kind of pieced out towards the end. One stayed at the foot of his cross. But yet those disciples changed the world. Look around you. Not the biggest church. But God can use. In fact, I would argue, we just celebrated St. Anthony. One of the things that we realize about St. Anthony is that God can use the least among us. God can use the weakest among us, the smallest among us. I mean, it's all throughout the Bible. David defeating Goliath. I believe it was Gideon's army, right? You don't need the thousands, Gideon, just the, the ones that lap up water, just those few. We can change the world. Believe that. When we're committed, we can change the world. I think I need to pause it there because we got to move on with this service. Maybe we'll share some of these things online. Will Christians become disciples? Let it be so. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Thank you for listening to the Sacred Commons podcast. You can find out more about us at our website, thesacredcommons.com. If you feel connected to this ministry in any way, we appreciate your support. We appreciate your partnership. It helps us continue to do this work in the city of Youngstown, where we are happy to be launching a new church plant. Finally, why don't you come and join us for a service? 323 Wick Avenue, at the beautiful St. John's Episcopal Church. We meet in the chapel. Come and worship with us. We'd love to see you there. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace.